Hello, Smoke Em If You Got Em listeners. This is Sarah Heppala, one half of your podcast team, flying solo for this episode. From time to time, Nancy and I like to do our own interviews with compelling folks. And so that's what's happening here today. Megan Daum is a longtime journalist and essay writer who's been featured in The New Yorker and The New York Times and all sorts of fancy places. She's been around for more than two decades. And though we became friends, I admired her long before I ever knew her. She wrote these eloquent, bluntly honest essays about being a writer or, more recently, living alone and not having children. But it wasn't until she began her podcast, The Unspeakable, that I realized just how much I admired Megan. Because she was doing something that I could not, at least back then. She was trying to understand a very chaotic world in real time. She and her guests would have these open, compelling conversations about Me Too or policing or what we used to call, for lack of a better term, cancel culture. That podcast is no doubt one of the reasons I wanted to do this podcast with Nancy when I finally screwed up the courage to also say difficult things in public. These days, Megan has a second podcast with the millennial activist Sarah Hader. It's called A Special Place in Hell, where they talk about current news from their own perspectives. Megan is a single Gen Xer like me, and Sarah is a millennial and also a mother. I recommend both podcasts highly, but today I'm speaking with Megan one-on-one. I've been wanting to have her on the show for a while now to talk about our shared paths and also some of our differences. And we also talk about changing politics. And you can hear us teasing out a few theories about this chaotic world that I found pretty compelling. And in the longer paid subscriber portion of the show, we get pretty feisty on the topic of dating and also feminism today. So happy holidays. And I hope our conversation can keep you company wherever you are. Megan Daum, welcome to Smoke Em If You Got Em, singles edition. Hi, Sarah. It's great to be with you. I was imitating your cadence from the Unspeakable podcast. Did you notice that? Oh, no. Uh, why? Is there some way that my voice... Do I have up talk or no, down talk? No, it's, it's very professional. You always say, somebody's name, welcome to oh. the unspeakable. And it's like, uh, when I hear your voice, like I just hear that in my head. No, you're an excellent interviewer. You're very, very good. You know what? I think that all of us who grew up listening to Terry Gross on Fresh Air just internalized her cadence. So... Yeah. She always would say, so and so, welcome to fresh air. And I think yeah, I just that's a good point. copied that. I, I was listening to uh my you know, I did that podcast about the Dallas Cowboys cheerleaders and and it's called America's Girls. And I noticed that I did this thing that Michael Barbaro always did. But I think everyone <laughs> else does, where you go, This is America's girls. Oh, I thought you were gonna say when people are talking, you go, hmm. No, no. I mean, that's what he, yeah. He also gives, I actually think he gives really good nonverbal affirmation, but I understand that's like a grading point for a lot of people. He's the host of the daily podcast on the New York times in case you don't know him. Yeah. Well, you have to remind your audience that you're there. If your guest is 
talking on and on and on. And, so. and you have to, like, there are times when I'm interviewing somebody and they're telling something that is so intense that it's almost weird if I don't say anything, but I don't want to interrupt them. So right. the noises become useful, kind of like small punctuation points that don't break the flow. Yeah. Now, and have you like caught yourself interrupting guests when you listen back oh God, totally. to the podcast? I just right then, just no, no, to no. Make point. <laughs> you didn't interrupt. Oh, I see. Yeah, because you know it's so funny because doing these interviews and having to listen back to yourself, it's really excruciating. But you learn so much, like just about your bad conversational habits, like the 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 way that we interrupt. I anyway, a guest right when they're in the middle of saying something interesting. It used to happen all the time when I would just interview people for like magazine articles. You know, I'm sure you remember this yes. and you listen back to your tape and you're just like, yes. what the fuck? What? Why? Why? Like this person was just about to like give you the money shot conversationally yeah. and you just block them. Why? Because it comes from, I think it comes from two things. One is that we're um, socialized to, it's almost like a conversation is a balloon you don't want to let drop on the ground. And yes. so you sort of want to keep it going and going and going. But the other thing is, I don't know about you, but I get really excited. I get yeah. so excited about the point that I want to make <laughs> that I right. barrel over the point that you're making, which is obviously something I do in real life without really being aware of it. Yeah. And then I've had to listen to myself on on podcasts where not only is it bad for audio, but like you say, you you discourage people from saying the other interesting thing they were about to give you. Yeah, no, it's terrible. As Fran Leibowitz said, the opposite of talking is not listening. It's waiting. It's waiting for your turn to speak. <laughs> it's totally true. That, yeah, she's so good. I mean, you know, and it also reminds me that um, I remember somebody, I, I don't remember who it was, but they were a better interviewer than me, clearly. And they were like, the best tip I can give you is grow comfortable with silence. Yes. Yes. And a long pause. Don't be afraid of the long pause because it sounds so much longer to you in the moment than it does listening back. Like I get really panicked. Like, like they don't know what to say or the audio dropped out. Maybe we had a technical problem and I just lost them. It's like, no, actually like one and a half seconds have gone by. You can sit here and wait for them to utter their next syllable. It won't kill you. Well, this is also the hell of technology, right? Because I've noticed on phone calls with friends, we're having a really deep conversation and they ask me something and I'm taking a while to respond. And they're like, are you there? Did you drop? You, I know. It, it, can you hear I me? Know. Can you hear me? And I'm like, no, I'm just about to cry. Stupid cell phones. I know. I, 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 I still hate whatever. Anyway, we can move on from the subject. But I'm such a stickler for audio quality that I can't even stand having conversations on cell phones half the time because they're just, you can't hear anybody. And some people just don't seem to care. You are a top tier lady. Let me tell you. <laughs> well, <laughs> thousand count thread well, sheets, wide audio. Yeah. No, not quite. But yeah. Isn't it like, um, you're, you're, brother or your father is an audio and somebody's an audio engineer. Yeah. The whole family was audiophiles. So yeah, my wow. brother's a, a sound engineer at in Hollywood for a big studio. So he yeah. literally does the sound design for major motion pictures. So he's just appalled at how every podcast sounds like he can't even, I don't think he even listens to podcasts partly because he can't stand the audio quality. So 
it will never be good enough. Yeah. Yeah. Well, um, you come by that honestly then. Yeah. Um, so, okay. So you and I have been friends for a few years and we have a lot in common. We're both single and neither of us has had kids and we're personal essay writers with podcasts. Bless our hearts. (laughs) Um, but I do think we see some of those experiences differently and I want to tease out some of those differences and find the nuance as you often say on your podcast. Um, but before we do that, can you talk a little bit about where you came from? Like what was your childhood like? And, and I have to say, uh, I have the hardest time imagining you as a kid. Like in my mind, you're just a little adult. <laughs> yeah, that's actually for good reason. Yeah, you have that in common with my parents. Uh, they they could not imagine me as a right. child either, and uh, we're uh, would just as soon uh, pretend I was not. Yeah, um, I mean, it's hard to talk about this stuff because I don't want to. Like, I was thinking about this. It's hard to like. How do you talk about your childhood? honestly, but without sounding bitter still and aggrieved. Like my parents didn't do anything bad. Like they had the best of intentions. There was was, like no abuse going on by any means. And like everyone just did the best they could. Um, But yeah, no. So, I mean, my parents came from Southern Illinois, um, which is like basically the South. Like people don't really put this together. Illinois is a very long state. So if you're from the Southern part of the state, you're kind of, you're like near Tennessee. You're basically in the Ozarks, um, you know, effectively, if not technically. So um, they both had really dysfunctional families in very different ways. My father had like a, you know, very like just broken home situation. That sounds like such a cliche, but um, you know, just a, a very chaotic family yeah. situation. Um, my mother had a very, very difficult and dysfunctional mother. Um, and so when they got married, they just wanted to like completely distance themselves from their families. And they did that through like, my father was a musician and he, he was kind of a savant, like incredibly, incredibly brilliant at things like orchestration and arrangement, but he had very bad people skills and like, you know, he just couldn't like cope really, but he had like, it was incredibly gifted in a couple things. So he actually kind of, you know, saved himself through academia. Like he ended up through very bizarre channels. Like my parents had gone to Southern Illinois University. Okay. They were both the first in their families to go to college by like a lot. And my father just bizarrely ended up at Stanford. Um, He kind of followed a professor of his out there. I don't know exactly what the story was. So I was born in Palo Alto and, um, you know, my parents were totally fish out of water, but I think they figured out that if they could kind of like um, be in academic life, that especially for my mother, like that had the trappings of sophistication in a way that like really, really like turned her on. Like she loved that. I, she always said she wanted to be an academic, but she really wanted to be an academic wife. Like <laughs> she wanted to have like the certain kind of house and, you know, the bookcases and the, the Persian rugs and like the, the, you know, the, the house that, that, you know, that, that you associate like at it right out of like Jane Smiley's novel, Moo. I remember like just, that was mm-hmm. just, she described some the, <laughs> that back in the eighties, it would have been like the, 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 the copper, 
frying the copper pans hanging from a you know the ceiling over the kitchen island. You know what I mean? And and you can tell this is a different era because I don't think that's what professors are living with now. I mean, now no, they're poor, right? They're poor. It's just <laughs> yeah. so much right. of a harder profession. But there was a time when it was really associated with a much more yeah, like kind of William Sonoma life. Kind of, I mean, but in a in a kind of shabby way. So we ended up in Austin, uh, of all things. So I, yeah, so we kind of moved around. And so I was like a little kid in Austin and my brother was born there. And then my father like didn't get tenure. He had gotten a job uh, at University of Texas, like doing, mm-hmm. um, directing the jazz band actually. Wow. And so we had this kind of bohemian 70s life. Like my babysitters were graduate students from UT. And um, we had this kind of, yeah, I mean, there, it wasn't a lot of money, but it was a kind of shabby intellectual class kind of vibe. And then my father didn't get tenure. And my mother basically decided that he needed to be in New York and make it as like, I don't know what, like a a Broadway show composer. I don't know. So we packed up and moved to New Jersey um, to a town where some next door neighbors of ours in Austin had um, lived previously. We had very, they had no family. So we would have like very close ties to sort of family friends and they're very dear family friends. Um, who kind of took on parental roles for my parents and grandparental roles for me had uh, recently retired to Austin from this kind of affluent suburb in New Jersey. So my mother just decided that we were going to move there, even though we totally could not afford it. And we were just like the Beverly Hillbillies, like literally packed up a rider moving van and drove it. Like my father drove the moving truck and my mother drove me and my brother and our Plymouth Horizon um, from Texas to New Jersey. And from there, um, it was just sort of kind of miserable. Um, I mean, you don't recognize misery at the time, right? When you're a kid, you just think that this is how it is. But like, yeah, I mean, my mother just hated the town. She hated everybody. It was like tennis moms and nobody ever went into the city. Like, (laughs) just, you know, it was, it's not weird. It is weird. It is weird. But I forget this about us, that we both were raised around affluence, but without affluence. Yeah. Which is the worst. It's it's really bad. And and I I grew up around very rich kids in a Dallas part of town and we were the middle class. I thought we were so poor. I thought we were so poor because I couldn't afford a Louis Vuitton purse. Oh, God. Yeah, see, I I didn't think we were poor, but... um... I just, uh, yeah, I mean, we, my mother, like my father basically has like, he just, it's, it's hard to explain. Anyway, so he, we, he was like a freelancer, like he worked up in the attic and he, you know, he wrote, did a lot of arrangements for commercial jingles because um, he had some connections actually in Chicago. Any, Whatever. any does, ones that we would know? Well, the funny thing is like you would know them, but he didn't write the themes. Like he did a lot of um, arrangements for like U- United Airlines, like in the 80s back yeah. before it was a Gershwin thing. There was Fly the Friendly Skies. So he did oh, some sure. arrangements for that. Um, you know, he did some arrangements for McDonald's commercials. And it's very funny because um, somehow many, many years later, like literally a few years ago when my father died at his um, memorial service, which was then filled with the family, you know, he has actually pretty large family that he, that we were just estranged from for most of my life. And so somehow like he had reconnected with his family much, much, much later in life. And they had somehow the idea that he had written the, 
um, you deserve a break today. Oh no, that was a big one. <laughs> well, Barry Manilow wrote that actually. Um, right. But yeah, so at my father's memorial service, people were sort of going around and they were like, Uncle Glenn, it was so exciting to know that my fancy uncle wrote you deserve a break today. And my brother and I are just kind of staying there like, okay, just let them, let them think it. it because it was really important to my parents that their relatives thought such things. Like there was a lot of fakery. There was a lot of bullshit. Um, there was a lot of acting as if, and a lot of it was coming from my mother. And she was very, she just kind of had like, she kind of, she, she massively changed her personality probably when I was like in high school. And she went from becoming this incredibly angry, depressed person who hated the entire town to being like a theater diva and taking over the um, the theater world of the high school. So that was also a very phony persona. Um, but yeah, in the meantime, like, so the reason that you have a hard time picturing me being a kid was because my parents really didn't like children. Like they, yeah. they would say things like, we like you, but we don't like other kids, which <laughs> is interesting because a lot of people say that. I was going to say, a lot of my yeah. friends say that about their kids. Yes. So do mine. And I kind of want to say, well, that's great, but it doesn't really work that way. Like, you've got to like your mm -hmm. friends' kids. I mean, my parents would be like, go out and play, but the, we don't like those kids. It was like they wanted me to kind of not be a misfit, but yeah. they didn't want me to associate with like 90% of the kids that were available. So that was a lot of what was going on. That's so interesting. Yeah. How did you figure out you were a writer? Oh, because I, I suck at everything else. I was always a writer. <laughs> of elimination. Yeah. Well, I feel like you probably had a similar thing. Like even before I could write, I would draw stories. I would draw pictures mm -hmm. and then I would make, and I would make these little books and I would make my mother write the words underneath. Like I would tell her what the story was and she would write the words um, and so I would have these books. Now, most of them were rip off, ripping off Little House on the Prairie stories. Let's be, oh, let's yeah. be clear. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. I, so I started writing when I was uh, in earnest when I was about 10 and I was reading all these Stephen King short stories. And so all my stories were rip offs of Stephen King and the teachers who had never read that were like, this child is brilliant. <laughs> And I was like, don't so you were more sophisticated it. than me. I wasn't <laughs> reading Stephen King. Yeah. No, I it was like the one thing, you know, also like it was the one my mother was very controlling. And so it was like the one thing I mean, they, that they both were. Everything was about music in our family. You had to study music. You had to study it in a very sort of serious, I would say, joyless way. Um, so like I also had to play the oboe, which they made mm -hmm. me play because they had some anxiety that if I played a normal instrument, I wouldn't be the best. <laughs> That's the other thing. I know. Um, Are you good at oboe? I was good at it, but you know, you can't, yeah, I was very good at it. And I was, comp I, you know, played in the all state orchestra and I played through college and everything. Oh, wow. What, can yeah. I ask you a really dumb question that will, what is the oboe? I am? Mm -hmm. What is an oboe? Well, it's not the bassoon. That's probably what you're thinking of. The bassoon is the huge one that looks like a bong. Um, the oboe, it's a double reed instrument. It's its about the size of a clarinet. It's a little thinner uh, than that. It's a woodwind instrument. The okay. problem is it, it's very hard because you have the reed, like these double reed instruments are just very hard. But the problem is you have to actually make reeds. Um, you, you like literally like oboists, double reed players have to like, they have 
their studios are like mostly like tools and wood and like you know they constantly making these reads and i could just never figure out how to do that no you can't play the oboe casually it's very Mm -hmm. when you're in an orchestra the oboe parts are very exposed you always have a solo you're always on so like i always wish i could have like played a string instrument and just kind of like relaxed in the the back of the section somehow or something like if i had played the violin i would still be playing so it's kind of sad well and and it's not like the i mean some of the more quotidian instruments like the piano or the guitar where like you come to go to a party and people are like hey let's <laughs> right. sing a song like nobody's like play a song play on the oboe. Oboe and we'll sing along i know well i would not have been allowed to play the guitar because that would have been like pop music so like we had to um, learn classical music and i i started off with piano but like my father you know, he wanted us to learn theory. We had to learn theory. We had to learn like every intricate thing and it was miserable. There was no joy in it. So I quit that. Um, and then I was only allowed to quit if I took it up another instrument, but it had to be a concert instrument. So yeah, no, no, no. It killed. Look, Sarah, like the tragedy of my life is that I am not a singer songwriter. Like I worship that those women, those musicians, I am an, I have incredible musical aptitude and I hear every single thing and it's almost excruciating. It's not almost, it is like, it's hard for me to enjoy a lot of music if it's not like sophisticated and actually good. And so I have a hard time actually participating in like a lot of musical experiences with other people because if they're not real musicians, they don't really like it's not good enough. It's so, it's really. Yeah. Up. Your parents shaped you so fancy that yeah. it's, um, you have such a fine tuned ear that it's difficult to participate in the, in the, in the chaos and three chord. No, song. I can't. I have no the interest in that. Us are no. like, Oh my God, Miley Cyrus. No, you know? no, it's gotta be alternate tunings. There have to be certain harmonics. Oh there have God. to be certain chord changes, but you, and I've tried many times to like t- learn as an adult and I just don't have the, the patience. It's really it's, well, it's and this sad. this makes me think this is why you're such a Joni Mitchell fan, um, because she has a lot of those sophisticated tunes, yeah. and I actually have a much more like I I I think one of the most controversial things I can tell you or anyone is that I don't like Joni Mitchell. Oh, but she has so many different. I mean, a lot of people hate her. I don't like her early stuff at all. That's completely uninteresting. She only gets interesting to me in like the mid seventies. Um, she hates her. I mean, early I should stuff. try her. You know, it's just somebody that I can't tell you the number of times somebody's put on a Joni Mitchell album with that like look of anticipation, like "Oh my God, wait till you hear this." Yeah, they put on the wrong album. I and then I'm like, "Oh my God, make it go away." No, she's like. Yes. Yeah, no, it's really high. Yeah, no, because they, they put on totally the wrong albums. They probably put on Clouds. Yeah. No, she hates her. She hates that stuff. I mean, I wrote a whole piece in The Unspeakable called The Joni Mitchell Problem. And it's about this. It's about how people like the wrong stuff. You know, it's sort of when you're known for your, when you're most famous for your worst work. That, to me, is the Joni Mitchell problem. And she encapsulates it. Uh and I mean, I had dinner with her one time. It was one of the highlights of my life. And we talked oh, wow. all about wow. it. Yeah. And we talked all about, like, I, I had very specific questions for her about, like, time signature changes and, like, particular very deep cuts of, like, certain r- albums. And she was, like, loving it, of course. And she said that her early stuff she just can't even listen to that she hates, which 
I, yes, I would see why. So, well, and she has that in common with Tom Waits, who is, um, another one of my, that's my musical obsession. Yeah. I love him. And, um, you know, he can't listen to his early stuff. Unfortunately with him, I I disagree with them. I, I love the early Tom Waits, the ballads and stuff like that. I fucking love them. Mm -hmm. Um, but you know, this is another thing we have in common. Then I didn't realize that our parents, my mother was a classical music freak. Absolute. Mm absolute played classical music 24 seven in our house. And she was so determined to raise two classical music lovers. And Mm. she instead raised two rebellious teens that played pop music in their bedrooms all the time. Did she want you to play an instrument? Yeah. Well, uh, my brother played violin viola for a little while, um, and then, uh, my, my mother and I, our biggest power struggle ever came over the piano yeah. because she had wanted, uh, to take lessons as a child. And it was like the saddest thing of her childhood that she didn't get to. And so she wanted to make sure that I could, and I was really young. I was like five or six since so I didn't never want to practice. And yeah. we would get into these power struggles over my not wanting to practice. And it, they got really, really ugly. I won't even say, and this was like the worst part of my mother daughter tension with my mom. And one day I looked at her and I was like, if you like the piano so much, why don't you take it? And she was mm-hmm. like, oh, because <laughs> she was also learning to be a therapist. Uh-huh. And And so she could see exactly what was happening here, that she was trying to give me the childhood she hadn't had. I was rejecting it because it wasn't the one I wanted. And, you know, and I never, and it's kind of a, you know, it's a, at the time it was a triumphant story um, because then I got all that time to be in my room watching TV's fame. Um, (laughs) Well, that is time well spent. It was time well spent, let me tell you. But, um, but I never learned an instrument. Um, about seven years ago, in, after I quit drinking, I learned to play guitar enough that I can play songs, but I don't play them in public and not well. It's it's really more of just like a pl- personal pleasure for me. I think that would be good. I mean, I, I have a guitar and uh, I uh, I keep thinking I should have some kind of hobby because I don't have any... Uh, recreational activities these days that's why i picked it up because drinking had been my recreation and going to the bar and all that stuff and i just didn't every time people told me to meditate i was like the one to punch him in the face and so i was like i gotta find something else so yeah i know it's hard though It's, it's hard to not you know it's to be good at something to have mastered something is an incredible pleasure and so if you're not at that for me anyway, like I, I can't enjoy things that I'm not good at. Well, okay. Yeah, no, I know that's, and that's part of my, I mean, part of why I learned guitar was that I'm trying to teach myself how to not be good at something Mm -hmm. because I could see that it was keeping me out of doing things. And I thought that was a problem. It was, you know, I just, I didn't want to do sports because I'm not good. I didn't want to, you know, run because I might look foolish. I didn't want to do this, that, and the other thing. And it's like, okay, well, what are you going to do? You got to do something. You can't start out good either. I know. Um, So, okay. So I want to talk about your young writing life. You know, you had a lot of success early on as a young writer. Um, And my best friend in college is the one who introduced me to your work. And this was like 20 years ago. And she'd read My Misspent Youth when it came out in The New Yorker. And that was an essay about going into debt while getting your MFA. And it eventually became a book of essays. 
But this time that I am thinking about, she, you had also written this feisty column about condoms and safe sex for the New York Times. Oh, do you remember God. this? Uh, yes, I do. Yes. Okay. In, like, what's the sentence description of it? Um, uh, well, uh, that would be called a 25 year old tries desperately to, uh, get published. So I had a half baked idea. Um, I, before we talk about my writing, I just want to say, because I didn't entirely answer your question. So the reason I think I became a writer is because writing was the one thing that my parents didn't have their hands in. I, it was the thing that nobody else in my family did. They weren't even really big readers. Um, uh, so I just had this thing that I could do and I owned it. Like even in high school, I kind of started writing these essays and I was noodling around with ideas and it was just something that was totally my own. Uh, so yeah, so that was always, it wasn't even in question. Like I never, it, it was the, I, I knew that I was good at it. I, I guess like my, I, I had fears very, very, when I was like, in my early twenties that I wasn't going to make it as a writer, but it was always because I felt like, Oh, I don't have the right connections or I'm not going to get published for some reason or something like that. Mm -hmm. So I didn't actually doubt my ability. And I have to say that I write like a musician. It's very, I'm very Mm -hmm. um, attuned to sound and rhythm of sentence. And so Mm -hmm. I would never be the writer I am actually without the parents that I have. So I think that's important to note. Um, okay. So (laughs) the piece about, um, the, the way the safe sex message had been co-opted by, um, fashion and culture. Let's, let's summarize that piece this way. That came about because when I was 24, maybe 25, um, I had gotten published. I published a piece very, very early in my career. My first kind of big published piece ever was in the New York times book review. It was about the Breadloaf Writers Colony, where I had gone as a as a waiter. I don't know if people know the kind of hierarchy. Breadloaf Writers Colony is a famous writers colony, uh, writers conference, excuse me, conference in Vermont. And um, and writers are they they take jobs as the waiters. Yeah, well, I mean, you go. There's a whole hierarchy. So there's famous yeah. people like John Irving was there. The summer I went there in like the summer of 1994, maybe. And uh, you know, there's famous writers there, and then there's sort of medium writers that maybe pay a little bit of money, and there's like the riffraff that pays a couple thousand bucks back in the day. I don't know what it is now. And then, and it's not a colony. You just go to cocktail parties all day and like readings right. of famous writers. Uh, and But there's a the thing like if you're sort of up and coming or if you're at an MFA program or something, you can apply and submit your work. And um, if you can, if they like you, they'll let you go for free, but you have to be a waiter. So being a waiter um, is actually this very prestigious thing. Uh, they've actually now gotten rid of the waiter program because, of course, there was some kind of like identity meltdown a, a few years right. ago. Um, anyway, of goes without saying. But back in 1994, I was a waiter. You said the word hierarchy and you said the word colony. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was not a colony. It was a conference. But yes, but the McDowell (laughs) colony, well, the McDowell colony um, is now just called McDowell, by the way. The most famous artist colony is now not no longer a colony. Um, so I had published a big splashy piece making fun of the Breadloaf Writers Conference in the New York Times book review. And I was in an MFA program at Columbia and I had like a, you know, a lot of editors kind of sniffing around as they right. do. If you're a very young writer and you're kind of writing in your face 
<clears throat> kind of big, splashy, stylish pieces. And some editors from the New York Times came and they said, oh, do you have any ideas? And at that time, it was 1995, probably. And no, where you you were probably like in college at this time, right? Okay, so that was a time when the AIDS crisis was such that the the public health messaging was not just this is something that's affecting gay men disproportionately, but everybody's vulnerable. Like no matter who you are, you you have a very good chance of getting AIDS and dying. Like when I was in college, I got to college in 1988, and they were saying things like there are lesbians on this campus who are transmitting HIV to other lesbians and you're all going to die. Okay. And I was noticing by the mid nineties that it was very much a vehicle of style. Like Madonna, she had like a whole, you know, her album, everything was like safe sex. It was virtue signaling before we had that. Totally. Totally. And it was fashion. And it was also something where it was freaking people out I mean, remember those Ben that the Benetton ad where it was like a million little tiny faces of um of different young people like every oh, yeah. and it was and they had AIDS written across them like AIDS 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 oh, AIDS Oh god, AIDS. I forgot about that one. I thought you meant just the normal Benetton ad because they always had these diverse well, right. from all over the country and I mean all over the world. Yeah, there but was no they yes because it was like the face of AIDS is not what you think kind of thing. Yes, and there was a million tiny like little and and I remember hanging out with some friends because they were. Every, you know, all kinds of like different sorts of people, like young people and like, you know, white and black and from every country, you know, united colors of whatever. And I remember hanging out with some girlfriends one night and, you know, we're in our mid twenties and like, oh my God, do all these people have AIDS? Like, and you know, somebody was like, well, yeah, they do. I mean, this is what, ha- this is how it is. I mean, that you, we're all, we're, everybody's vulnerable, you know? And I was like, is that true? And I was also noticing this thing that everyone was so paranoid about it, but they would still like, get a boyfriend and then within two weeks, like not be using condoms and then be freaking out. Right. (laughs) So totally. And getting AIDS tests. Like I would go in to get a freaking HIV test. If I had a cold and going in to see like the campus health services, like, Oh, I'm here. I guess I'll get an AIDS test. And then like freaking out over the two weeks that it would take to get the results. Like it was just this cultural thing that I noticed that was kind of unspoken and hard to tease out. So I tried to write an essay talking about all of this and it was really complicated and it was like 3,500 words or something. And the New York times is like, wow, that's totally interesting. Like we want you, we want you to write this. And long story short, it ended up being in the New York Times magazine, but they cut it down to about 1200 words and it was a disaster. And it made, and it like, they of course wanted me to pose for a photo illustration with it. And I had the, at least the presence of mind to say no to that. But it, they did a cartoon drawing of a girl who looked like me sitting on her bed, like in her underwear, just the worst. And the piece did not land. I did not make any, it was incoherent. It made it sound like I had had unprotected sex with 700 people. Like it was terrible. How dare they? It was only 500. Well, exactly. (laughs) Um, and, uh, it was, if it had been before, if it had been like in social media era, my career would have been over before it started. I mean, it was, I was accused of everything from being a slut Mm -hmm to being homophobic because I was downplaying the risks. Uh, it was horrible. And uh, the New York Times got like 600 angry letters in one week. I it was, it was just a disaster. So um, 
Yeah, can but you it also imagine going through that in the age of social media? It would have been whatever no. that was amplified by right. degrees of 100. Yeah. So when I learned my lesson, you know, and the thing is people were calling me. It's like you people's names were in the phone book. Like people can just get a phone book and look you up and call me. And so my phone was ringing and people are calling and yelling at me and calling me a slut. And like, you know, I was living with roommates and they're like <laughs> answering the phone. It was so messed up. Um, wow, that is that is so messed up. Well, okay. So this helps give me some context for, for what I'm about to say next, because <clears throat> my best friend was telling me about the column and she was really, really mad about it. I mean, she was yeah. so angry. I remember her telling me about it and kind of privately thinking, that actually sounds like a good column. But I didn't say that. But this is, you know, that forecasts our future, uh, you know, parallel <laughs> yeah, exactly. thinking. To me, it seemed like you were saying the obvious thing that was totally true yes. and that it you had run afoul of certain dogma and everybody was up in arms about that. But anyway, I just was in that, you know, I was just indulging my friend and she was just like raging on and on about you. And she had this thing about you for a while. And what's so funny about this and the reason I bring it up is that she is now a very big fan of yours and has <laughs> been a fan for years now. She loved The Unspeakable, which was is now the name of your podcast, but was also a book of essays. Yeah. And she listens to your podcast all the time. And we talk about you all the time. She oh, loves you. And I asked her once, what was going on? And she said, you know, I think about that a lot. And she said, I think I was just really, really jealous that she had this megaphone and I didn't. Well, it wasn't a good piece. It didn't, it didn't work. So what would have been interesting if I had been able to pull that piece off, if I had had more space, um, if somehow I had been able to thread the needle would the reaction have been any different? I mean, that's actually what's interesting because I've spent a lot of time thinking, oh, damn, like I should have, I should have pulled the piece. I should have found a way to publish this the way I wanted, but maybe it wouldn't have made a difference. I mean, we certainly see that now. Uh, but you know what it also did was I'm very protective of my work and I will never let that happen again. I will withdraw a piece in a heartbeat if I see that it's going in that direction. And I have. Well, you you said like you made the the example of like if if this were happening now it could have ruined your career, but it's interesting because since it happened when it did, it actually set your career on a better track. You learned a very valuable lesson early on. Yeah. Yeah, and it did get attention. You know, the thing is, and here's another thing too, like I I often talk about how back this was I think that piece came out in 1996 maybe by the time it actually ran. Um in that time, if you made people angry, you got more assignments. Like sure. that was the job. The editors called you. Um, so in a way, it that was, was good. true until like five years ago. <laughs> yeah, five only five years ago. I mean, yeah. I don't know. I drew that number out of my right. You know what? Maybe but so. I mean, like, but like yeah. all my journalism life, it was like you wanted people. You wanted to get noticed. You wanted people to pay attention, and you know the people that were the provocateurs were the ones that were on the covers of the magazine. Exactly. And that was what was interesting about being a writer to me. I mean, you and I have talked about this. Yeah. I, I ultimately being a writer was more satisfying to me than I think being a musician ever would have been. Cause even if I had been a successful musician, 
musicians don't have these interesting kinds of conversations. Like that's just not the world of like, for the most part anyway, um, of you're not hanging out with people having these intellectual discussions. I think if you're a singer songwriter, I mean, maybe there's some exceptions, but so I loved being around smart people who were thinking about these things and could really, we're just in the world of ideas. Um, and that is what, uh, started to be a real loss. I mean, we've talked about this a ton, uh, maybe starting maybe seven years ago. Yeah, actually, this leads into my next question, because, you know, I've listened to The Unspeakable, your podcast, since uh, you started it, which was maybe, what, three years ago? Uh, Two and a half years ago. I started it during the pandemic, just like everybody else. (laughs) So one of the questions that you often ask your guests is, when did they start noticing a change? What did they start? And I, I can feel you trying to build a grand unifying theory about how this all began, this thing that we're in that I suspect we don't need to explain to people listening to this, because if they listen to you or they listen to me, they likely know what we're talking about already. Um, You have a book called The Problem With Everything, which is a collection of essays about um, how culture seemed to have gone awry or different or whatever. Um, What's your theory on when this started or have you ever figured out an inciting incident? Mm. Um, I usually say 2014. Yeah. You know, I remember, um, what year was it? I remember being in a conversation with a couple of, uh, writer friends of mine. I'm not going to name names, but, um, who, we were very much, we were having a discussion. I remember we, we were, we were talking, it was so of the time we were talking about starting like a new magazine or something. Yeah. And like, we were just spitballing, like what would be some good stories? Like what's going on in the world right now? And I remember saying to one of them, have you noticed this thing that's happening on like Twitter and stuff where people are going, I'm going to call you out. There's something happening. I'm seeing that phrase everywhere. Have you seen this? I'm going to call you out for saying such and such. And we didn't even have the term call out culture yet or cancel yeah. culture. This was way before this. So this was probably like me. This might have been like 2012, even 2013. Yeah. I don't know. And the other person, the person I was talking with said, no, I haven't seen that. I don't know what you mean. And I'm like, yeah, yeah, there's something happening here. And I think that that just escalated. I remember having a conversation in 2015, probably, about Roxanne Gay. And this was a conversation with another writer who used to be friendly. I used to be friendly with who doesn't speak to me anymore, would have no, uh, would never want to be associated with me. And Roxanne Gay, in case you don't know, is a prominent writer (laughs) who did a first-person collection of essays and pop culture criticism called Bad Feminist, which was a blockbuster in 2014. It was 2014. Yeah, it's funny because it was... See, before then, everyone kept saying, don't write essays, nobody will buy them. And she was... That was huge. She did an, an incredible thing for everybody because Bad Feminist came out, I believe it was the summer of 2014. Um... And great title. Most of the pieces were actually from recycled from places like Salon, I believe. Um, but 
uh, that was a big hit. I mean, Roxane Gay is a African American woman, uh, you know, kind of slightly non-binary, um, very, very large, queer, fat, all the rest by her own definition, by her own, you know, this was all part of their, she was very identity based. What's that? She's an intersectional queen. Yes, exactly. Um, And so I remember having a conversation in probably 2015 with somebody and I said, you know, Roxanne Gay is going to be, is an enormous star. Like she is, her ethos is now dominating the culture or soon will be. Mm -hmm. And this person was like, that's not true. That's not true. That she's going to be a flash in the pan. No way. And I said, no, that, that no way. And look, I, I just think that that she represents sort of the tide turning where it didn't matter what you said. It mattered who you were. It didn't matter what was being said. It mattered who was saying it. That's and really so um, I, I just, I, it was, it was all right around then. And uh, it's, you know, it's hard too when you're our age, because I was also, look, I mean, I was 45 in 2015. Yeah. I was becoming irrelevant for a whole bunch of reasons. Yeah. So it's hard to say. If I had been 25 and saying this exact same things, I don't know. Maybe I would have been received differently. I don't know. Well, I know for me, it took me a very long time to say anything about any of this stuff because I couldn't figure out what part was reasonable skepticism and what part was grumpy old age. Yeah, exactly. Um, But that kind of, and I think that happened at scale. And then what happened was this feeling like the adults just left the room. Yes. Yes. And, and I've also had arguments with former friends who say even for you to say the adults have left the room just shows that you don't want change to occur, that you just want things to stay the way they've always been. And you're not letting young people take the lead as they should. So when did you decide you were a conservative? (laughs) Well, now that you just mentioned it, (laughs) you know, I used to, I'm really, I'm curious what you think about this because I'm having to really check myself because I, lately, you know, calling you a conservative is like the the cudgel of choice on social media, right? So like if they don't really have an argument for what you're saying, they just call you a right winger or they'll say, you know, Matt Taibbi and Barry Weiss are right winger, a right wing journalist. So therefore, et cetera, et cetera. Now they are not, they're not. My, my, Matt Taibbi is a left-wing journalist. Last time I checked, Barry yeah. Weiss is pretty center, center-right, maybe. Uh, certainly not right-wing. Um, if somebody calls me a conservative, I used to say, well, no, I'm not, no, I'm not, no, I'm not. But, like, what is a conservative, actually? Maybe I should just stop protesting. Uh, you know, so I heard the reason I wanted to ask you about this is because I heard you talking about this with Sarah Hader on the other podcast that you have, which is a special place in hell, which is awesome. And, uh, you know, it was around the time that the Washington Post had just described Barry Weiss and Matt Taibbi as conservative. Yeah, I have been described as conservative. And I started to think, you know, we're experiencing a political realignment. We know this. And it's possible that the word conservative doesn't mean what it used to. 
Right. And it's possible that if we are experiencing an ideological succession, as Wesley Yang suggests, Wes Yang does a podcast um, in a substack called Year Zero and has talked a lot about this pivot point. You know, if we are experiencing that, then maybe people like you and me and Matt and Barry are conservatives because we're trying to conserve the old ideology which has to do with things like free speech, due process, what else? Those are the well, two liberal big... enlightenment values. Exactly. Yeah. But that's liberalism. Yeah. So, so maybe I mean, that does make us conservative. But liberalism is a bad word too, because the progressives will use liberal as a disparaging term. So like neo, you know, Bill Clinton was a neoliberal. Uh Right. I guess I feel like maybe liberalism and conservatism are the same. I I don't know. Like they're kind of I mean, look, Donald Trump's not a conservative. He's a radical. He's, he's radical. he has he has no ideology. I mean, he's an incoherent radical narcissist. Mhm. So that sort of is just on its, let's just put that aside in its own little category here. I don't think we should use Donald Trump as any kind of metric for any kind of political alignment. He just sort of is his own case and his followers are their own case. I mean, a lot of his followers, they're just, they could have, they're just deranged. I mean, um, so, I mean, the real hardcore conspiracy theorist types, I'm not talking about just your run of the mill. Let's not even get into who's who voted for Trump. <laughs> but okay. Um but uh you know, I I I've said this before. I think I have a conservative personality. Um I like people to you know what it is? I don't like I don't like childish things. I don't like being a child. I like being an adult. When I was a kid, all I wanted to be was an adult, partly because my parents hated kids. And I didn't I had a hard time relating to other kids because I wasn't really allowed to act like them. I would kind of get punished if I acted like a child. So it's just got very ingrained in me to act like an adult. So I, I like it when people comport themselves in a mature manner. And that's kind of how I go around in my, in my life sort of personally. So I think that gives me a conservative temperament. And that's why I don't like the pussy hat marches for instance i don't like seeing explicit sexual kind of expressions in gay pride parades and drag shows because and i think most gay people don't either because it's not it's not um what's the word it's just not uh, a serious way to operate it's not. It have, it's, it's not dignified. Outre, That's the word I'm looking for. Dignified. It's an outre way of of being that comes out of the crisis of the AIDS years. Yeah, you know when sexuality. when ACT UP was yeah. big and there was such a silence around gay lives and like it just it, it's become sort of cartoonish and predictable in a way that I think yeah I think most most gay men that I know are not are not as interested in that. Um, it, it feels like something that we can put in the past. Um, you know, I, I don't think of myself as conservative traditionally, but I do think I am a little bit resistant to change. Like I'm always like the light, latest adopter. Me too. Oh my God. Totally. Like, like I'll start wearing yoga pants right when everybody is like, these are kind of over, right? 
I'll be yeah. like, no, I'm just beginning. I know. I only got an iPhone in like 2014 or something. Yeah, I'm, I'm <laughs> just, I'm, I am, and I think of it as loyalty or, or like, I don't, you know, I can't be bothered with this trend. It'll pass. But like, I'm, yeah. I'm just the latest adopter. But I also think that in my sober life, I sort of came to this wisdom that it is so much easier to tear things down than to build them back up. And, and you have to be really careful about that. Yeah. And so to me, a lot of this like change, change, change just feels like impatient and reckless in a way that I associate with sort of like an adolescent mindset, Mm -hmm. which is like door slamming and do this now. And you're always like this. And, you know, and I just, I don't, that's why I think the no adults in the room always felt right because it felt like there was this adolescent id sort of rebellious adolescent id that kind of like took over the national consciousness. Right. And I wonder like how different it is from the adolescent id of the baby boomer era. I mean, are we just sort of Archie Bunker sitting here and just generationally, we just, we're hotter. (laughs) Generationally, we just kind of missed it. I mean, I can imagine what it must've been like for that older generation to just see like the hippie movement. I mean, the baby boomers, there were so many of them. That was such a cultural phenomenon. They just dominated all. The other generations had no hope. I mean, rock and roll was everything. Pop music, we will never go back. You know, everybody, we're going to, we are going to have, there's going to be no more generations that grew up on anything other than rock and roll based pop music right that's just hip hop i don't know about yeah right but i mean you know you're gonna have 80 year olds who don't care about classical music or never listen to it like you know what i mean like that's just yeah yeah. and and we are children of the counterculture winning yes you know like i like i grew up worshiping uh pop stars that were drinkers smokers and you know deviants Right. And, and that was something that pre-60s was just unthinkable, right? But those were the people that were plastered all over my bedroom. And, you know, and an earlier generation would have said, like, wow, that seems really like a problem. Like, you're going to raise a bunch of addicts. Well, like, guess what? I'm in a 12-step recovery program. I wrote a book <laughs> about my alcoholism. I'm not blaming that. I mean, I also have, like, a genetic, a nice genetic card that I was dealt. And there's all sorts of personal stuff. But, like, yeah, there are problems with making the counterculture the center culture because it keeps pushing. What can you get away with? Right. And, you know, it's possible we're, we're living in a time when there is another crack in the kind of tectonic plates in a similar way. And we don't know what it is yet because back then they didn't know what that was. And by the way, I think a lot about what I would have thought like who would I have been in the like when I was growing up I would watch these tv shows where the hippies were always cool and the people that didn't like the hippies were always squares and I was like I would be a hippie and now that I'm older I'm like that seems a little wild it's like very I'm, I don't do psychedelic drugs I'm just a little weird to me it is a little bit there was a little bit of a collective madness people ran off they joined compounds and farms I mean the fucking yeah. Manson family came out of this yeah I mean maybe the the counterculture is the default culture now. So maybe like our sort of little strain of intellectual contribution is the new counterculture. Like we are kind of an alternative, like this kind of independent journalism scene, whatever you want to call it. 
um, you know, your your mileage will vary in terms of quality of content for sure. But I find that stuff exciting. Like, I think maybe this kind of contrarian, whatever you want to call it. I don't like being called a contrarian either. That's a very contrarian thing to say. I'm not a contrarian. Uh, but maybe this sort of heterodox space, whatever you want to call it, is as close as we have to a counterculture at the moment. Because the, the, the old counterculture is now just mainstream regular culture. I think you've made a very good point. Um, and it's also, it's it's not lost on me that the majority of the people are sort of Gen Xers that grew up like in love with being in the alternative spaces and countercultures. Yeah. And there's um, so few of us. That's the, all, our cohort is so small, the Gen Xers. Well, 10 million, what is it, like 10 million smaller than millennials? At least. I mean, we're just tiny. They don't even know that we that we exist. I mean, I remember having a conversation with a student at Columbia a few years ago, and she was railing on about like the baby boomers and then the millennials or something. And and I said, well, you know, there's a generation in between those two things. And she was like, what? Like <laughs> she had never heard of Gen X like at all. Oh, well, that's just because we're so cool. We're like an underground, yeah, we're like an underground exactly. band that nobody knows yet, right? Um, you know, but you know, I think we have a tremendous opportunity to speak to the Gen Zers, um, because they're obsessed with the nineties. Yeah, they're obsessed with the nineties. I sometimes date much younger men, and I showed up on a date with this guy who drove an old wagoneer. And had a tape deck in his car. <laughs> Wait, a wagoneer? You mean like a station wagon? No, like a like a SUV. Oh, like a like a Jeep kind of like, like one grand, of those. I think they were called Grand Wagoneers. Oh yes, yes. Okay, yes. He had a tape, not a tape like a cassette, deck. like a cassette, a cassette player. Tape. Yes, not an eight track. I guess that would have no. been cassette tape well I had a cas- yeah had, if your like, car's old enough like, you've got a cassette tape yeah corduroy jackets that look you know that had like <laughs> shearling it, it was the whole yes. thing was like walking back into my college years I gotta tell you it was really hot personally um, well yeah because it's like you were in co- he lo- he looked exactly like your boy your college boyfriend <laughs> in the 90s <laughs> just did, never aged just preserved. <laughs> Did, I'm in a weird upside down world where like the, I got hotter when I got older. And so when I was in college, I was just like this kind of like schlubby binge drinker that wore oversized clothes and everybody w- like was friend zoned constantly. Um, <laughs> and I'm getting them back now. Um, but the point is that I think those there's a bunch of Gen Zers that are sick of this stuff. They're not necessarily on social media. They're obsessed with the 90s. Like, I, I think there's such an opportunity for a alliance between those two generations. That is so interesting. I just interviewed somebody on The Unspeakable who said almost the exact same thing. Um, yeah. She said, you really need to get to know some some Gen Zers. How old are Gen Zers, though? What does that mean? I don't know. <clears throat> I think they're like 25 and under. So this guy was 24. You can't. Okay, Sarah. But no, I mean, we'll have this another, we'll have okay. this talk another right. time. I didn't okay. date him for very long. Okay. Okay. I mean, but it was like, he was an old 24. He was like yeah, an old yeah. soul. Yeah. Anyway, no, don't, I hear you. let's not get sidetracked no, right. on no, that. No, no, that's but, good. 
But but like but like uh, you and I would know this if we had kids, which we don't. Yes, right. Neither yeah. one of us has children, and that is another thing that we have in common. Um, you know, I uh, this the other. What am I going to? We're kind of running out of time. I had I have like twenty more questions for you. We're going to do uh, some some paid subscriber only bonus content, but I want to see what I can. What I, what I want to put in here. Um, I know. Okay. This is my question. Okay. So, you know, Candace Owens. Well, I don't know her personally. No. no <laughs> I'm sure sorry. you're grateful for that. Yeah. Um, but, you know, she is, I mean, I have very mixed feelings about the Candace Owens, but um, she was on Joe Rogan many years ago and she said something that I often think about. She was talking about these single middle-aged women stars with no children like Sarah Silverman and Chelsea Handler and Kathy Griffin, women who are very activist oriented and very active online. And she was quoting a friend of hers. And she said, you know, if you don't use your eggs, they scramble. (laughs) And it's something it, it is, it's a mean thing to say. It's not necessarily an accurate thing to say in the sense that I know plenty of women that have kids who have scrambled brains and I have plenty of friends who don't have kids and seem completely mentally healthy. But I wonder if it keeps coming back to my mind because there is some kernel of interesting truth inside it somewhere um, that there is a maternal urge inside us or or if you don't want to go that route that throughout most history, people had children and then they put the children in the center of their lives. We have not done that. And so it leaves us with something of a lack or different if you don't want to make a hierarchy of it, because you and I can sit here all day and say, well, pro and con and pro and con. And yeah, 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 I agree. But I always wonder, is there something that I didn't like something big that I didn't learn because I didn't have kids? Oh, no doubt. Yeah. Same with me. But Sorry, did I just cut you off? No, 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 not at all. I mean, the other thing I was going to say is like, why do I, am am I so overattached to my cat? I mean, that's the other thing. That's where I see it is like, I have this insane overattachment to my cat. Just don't call your cat your fur baby. Okay. I don't call him my fur baby, but I do call him my little baby, my baby baby, and my big baby. Is that okay? That's, I'm not going to, I'm not here to judge. I I won't tell you what, I won't tell you what I call my dog. Um, um, so the, the not having kids thing, I, well, I mean, you and I are a little different because I very much don't have kids by choice. Right. So, and I'm completely at peace with it. I was deep down. I always knew I, it wasn't the best path for me. There was a time in my life where I could have done it. I mean, I've written about this, no, no secret, but I was, I was married and this was something that, you know, briefly was, uh, something that might have happened, but um, uh, I will be the first to tell you that I'm an outlier. Most women don't feel the way I do, um, which I, is interesting because I think most essays come from your perspective. Most personal writing on this topic comes from your perspective. My perspective. I say that as someone who doesn't share it. What do you mean? Like that? 
Women write stories about being glad not to have children. Oh, well, yeah, because it's a huge stigma to say that you're upset about it. And also it's like not feminist. You won't get the you go girls if you admit such a thing. I mean, it's the same reason that you don't see a lot of women writing about how they regret having children. And there certainly are those people. All you have to do is type, I regret having kids into Google and you would not believe what comes up. Uh, I ran one of those at Salon. What's that? I ran one of those at Salon. Yeah. And I mean, I hear from those people because they tell me. Yeah. Um, But I, you know, I think the mistake with this people, I I never use terms like child free. I hate that. Um, Part of the reason that I edited that collection, uh, Selfish, Shallow and Self-Absorbed, which is obviously a tongue in cheek title and um, was not my idea. Actually, it was my I had a co-editor at the very beginning um, of the project. And, and that's a and collection Akara. of essays by other people. That's yes. not just you. That's no, that's yeah, no, this was a book that I, children. that I edited. Yeah. I can't, it came out. It was my concept. That was my baby. I have to say that book I wanted to do for so long. And every, idea. every editor, idea. every publisher told me nobody will buy that. No, 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 no. There's no audience. And I kept saying you are wrong. And in fact, that was, it was on the bestseller list. Um, uh, so I, I don't, part of the reason I wanted to do that book was I don't like the way that people who choose not to have children frame it up with, oh, I would rather have these expensive shoes or I would rather go on vacations or, you know, that, that boat in my driveway is my child. That's just BS. That's not a serious way of thinking about it. And it's amazing to me that the stigma, it's so taboo to say, I don't want to do this that it's somehow less taboo to say I'm selfish, shallow and self-absorbed. Like, like that just blows my mind. I want people to be able to say, you know what? This is just, isn't for me. It's a really hard, important job that should only be done by people who really want to do it. And it's actually respectful to parents to say, I respect what you're doing enough to know it's not for me. I don't know why that's so hard. I don't know why that's like such a revelation, but anyway, that's how I see it. Um, but I really don't like it when people say, I-, I chose not to have kids and more people should not have kids. Like, I do think some a lot of people have kids that shouldn't have them. Don't get me wrong. I- I'm sure you but would agree. Why should that ever be your decision? Like, why should other people having children be your personal decision? It's yeah. like, that's not even your business. Right. It's fair because I think people are are threatened. You know, I was much more defensive about this when I was in a marriage where this was causing a lot of pain. Yeah. I definitely needed to like go out and find people who also didn't want to have kids or that kind of thing. I needed, I needed, I needed the validation so badly. Now, the minute that that was part of my life was over, non-issue. I never think about it. It's like, I just... I do. I love not having kids. And I think it's actually, it would have been, look, if I'd had kids, I would have loved them. I would have risen to the occasion. I would have done the best. Yeah, I we have could. no idea. But I pretty sure I wouldn't, I would not like my life. And I feel so lucky that I'm able to live now and have the choice that I, you know, to, I don't, that I didn't have to do that. I feel really lucky about it. Am I missing out on a lot? Yes, for sure. But that's okay with me. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I, I think this is one of the topics on which um, you've just written expertly about. Um, there is an essay that you wrote for The New Yorker uh, called The Difference Maker. I read it in print under the, the title of Central Sadness. Oh, 
It's funny. Is that the so the the essay is called Difference Maker? I think that no, that's the name of the essay. I think that like on the online version, no, the central sadness is a concept. Whatever, it doesn't matter. The central sadness okay, is a concept. Maybe that in the essay. wasn't. Maybe difference, it was that. I, but maker. for whatever reason, what I remember is the central sadness because it like pulled me in, and I thought yeah. it was just, it was just a, a. It's a beautiful, beautiful essay um, about not having children, and I, I, I think as you've continued to talk about this over the years, I have just really appreciated the way that as specific and true as your point of view is, you seem to always make room for other people and other women that have other uh, perspectives on this. Um, as you, you know, from, from our conversations, you know, I was somebody that really wanted to have children. Uh, I didn't. And it's not so much a sad thing as it's a question mark. It's like an ambiguous, I have no idea what that life would have been. I don't know if it's a blessing or a curse. Like I just sort of live with the uncertainty of it. And, um, you know, I remember seeing, it was actually on Twitter that I first saw you put, you know, I don't like the word child free. And, and I was like, yeah, I don't either. It had always bothered me that people would apply it to me because it didn't Mm, feel right. Right. And, um, so, you know, I, I really appreciate you, you giving voice um, to people like me. And I think that's what you do in your work, um, which has stretched back over now, gosh, more than two decades. Um, yeah. So we're going to, we're going to jet over to the paid subscriber only podcast. Uh, join us um, if you dare. And if not, well, I guess this is it. Now you should join us, everybody pay your money. Cause I'm really going to deliver the goods. Oh, we're going to talk about dating, Megan. Oh, God. Oh, God. Okay. <laughs> don't don't subscribe. <laughs> Unsubscribe. Yes, it's going to be the best. It's going to be the best. Okay. Bye. Bye. Bye.